0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. We are going to get to our interview here shortly with uh, the USGA's John Bodenhammer. You know him as the uh, he's the director of championships. He's in charge of the course setups. We didn't talk about this until about an hour in, but also a great player in his own right played a lot of uh, at a very high level of golf throughout a lot of his golf career and uh, has a unique perspective on a lot of things And we talk all things USGA, US Open exemptions, all that good stuff Uh, on Sunday night. I know we mentioned on the pod, the number one irons in golf as a part of a read and we were kind of surprised that we hadn't said that in a while, maybe haven't emphasized that enough. And I think that uh, kicked the guys at Callaway in the pants a little bit to realize that they should ask us to talk about that a bit more. So whether you're just picking up the game and we want to give a shout out to uh, Christopher, One of our Danish friends who told us on Twitter that he wants to hashtag get involved, just bought his first set of clubs, got his first lesson. Or uh, if you're out there trying to qualify for the U.S. Open which, spoiler alert for this podcast, uh, did not receive an exemption despite uh, declaring my intentions to qualify for this year's U.S. Open. Uh, Callaway has got a set of irons that are right for your game. Again, the lineup ranges from the forgiving clubs like the Maverick Max all the way to the ball striking machines like the Apex Pro and the X-Forge. Neil, I try to get Neil in the X-Forge and he, he claims that they're too much of a player's iron for him, but I really think he could play those. So again, check out callawaygolf.com. Uh, plus, despite everything going on, they're getting custom orders out the door incredibly quickly. Uh, so if you've got the means, now's a great time to get your hands on a new set of irons. Learn about the number one irons in golf by visiting callawaygolf.com slash irons. That's callawaygolf.com slash irons. Here is John Bodenhammer. So I don't think we have to go over every single category of the exemptions Um you know, I think we can start with just what is different than a normal U.S. Open. Of course, today it came out. the criteria going to be used for the 2020 U.S. Open. Uh, obviously, there's no qualifying. So, just kind of, can you give us a rundown of what the USGA has done to adjust the exemption criteria for this year?
1: Well, goodness, uh, today's announcement is a culmination of a, a lot of, uh, I would say, creative thinking. Uh, certainly, by, by a number of us within the USGA, um, a lot of dedicated staff, but also some external input and, and, um, and just some really uh, different thinking about how we might do this. You know, it's been really, it's been really agonizing to, uh, to be in this position, to have navigated the last few months with the pandemic, and uh, to have to cancel championships, not conduct qualifying. I think we put a lot of thought into uh, conducting these four championships, especially the US Open, in what we're calling a fully exempt way. And I would say that what is really most different uh, is just that, but the way that we've thought about it, I, I think, just to sum it up, our premise has been to uh, conduct the US Open with a representative field, and representative is a key word, of what normally in a typical year a US Open field would look like. What do I mean by that? Well. We've gone back several years, four or five, six years, uh, and looked at the data and looked at what a U.S. open field typically looks like from qualifying from players that are already exempt. How many PGA Tour players? How many European Tour players? How many Developmental Tour players? How many amateurs? And really looked at that and, and tried to uh, create exemption categories that would result in, or at least provide an opportunity for players to enter. And when we stand on the first seat at Wingfoot, we hope folks will say, well, they didn't have qualifying, but that looks a lot like what a US Open field would look like in a typical year. And, and announcing that today is, is, uh, is exciting for us.
0: Could you have picked maybe a better year to have come out with a marketing campaign around qualification, perhaps?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's a great question. I don't think our timing could have been worse. But uh, I will tell you what uh, the brand campaign from many one is something that we think uh, it will last for many years into the future. And you know, to think about our DNA that is qualifying, you know, we like to think of our championships, the U.S. Open for sure, but all of our championships as the ultimate meritocracies in their own demographic. And you know, it's really interesting. Each year, the U.S. Open, we have between nine and ten thousand players from every background that enter and follow their dream through the platform that is qualifying that we provide and we're very proud of that that's the cornerstone of usga uh, championships it's our dna it's who we are and i think going through this this year has really just reinforced that and so uh, we view this year as a one-off we'll get back to robust qualifying next year and we'll reintroduce the brand campaign in a a great way uh, uh next year
0: you know, I think for me personally, as a, I, I would, it's safe to say maybe eight years ago, I was much more of a casual golf fan than I am now that uh, I get to do this full time as a job. But it honestly took probably until last year to really hit me as to what the, you know, the phrase US Open meant when I was thinking of Brooks Kepka having won in 2017 and 2018. And finishing second in 2019 was, you know, out of the 10,000-ish people that go to start this process every year, literally none of them had beat him for two straight years, and only one guy beat him in the third year. That just, in a way, the qualifying makes it somewhat easier for a guy like uh, of Brooks's talent. You know, it, it, it. I don't want to say dilutes the field a little bit; just makes the field much more diverse, and is not necessarily the top 156 players in the world. But and also, in a way, just the fact that out of 10,000 people that that guy had that run, it just that that really that, stu- that stuck out to me a lot. And it was, uh, I guess, contributed to the the bummer that is this year of uh, not having qualification.
1: Yeah, it really is. And, and it's uh, but it's something we look forward to returning to. And, you know, you think about qualifying for us, as I said, it's at the heart and soul of what we do with all of our championships, especially U.S. Open. You think about some of the great stories. That have come through qualifying, local and final qualifying, Ken Venturi, um, Steve Jones, Michael, Michael Campbell a few years ago uh, that really made it through both stages, went on to win the championship and truly follow your dream. And there's always uh, that great story, that 17-year-old Bo Hassler at the Olympic Club in 2012. That, uh, that was right up there near the lead. Uh, I know when I played college golf, Bobby Clampett, someone who went through qualifying as a young 19-year-old amateur who had the lead after 27 holes of the U.S. Open. I, you know, I think the U.S. Open is truly that. It is the most open of um, of any championship in the world, and we can talk about that, but it, it is true. It really uh, it doesn't distinguish uh, from... Where you come, what your background is, who you are—all it is. Uh, the great determiner is how you get your ball in the hole and you earn your way in. That's it. And we're very proud of that. And, and, and uh, the ability for people to follow their dream is something that uh, we want to continue uh, as we go forward.
0: Well, before we get kind of into the this, this I've got like five things highlighted here that are basically, if I, if I were to sum it up, the adjustments you guys are making to kind of fill out that fill out that field, but. When it comes to the cancelization of the qualification outright, would you say it was something that eventually became a no-brainer, or was there a time, you know, once you started canceling local qualifiers, was there ever a time when you really thought you might be able to piece something together for qualification?
1: Yes, yes, all along the way. When when we began to face, you know, the COVID-19 coronavirus, uh, we went into uh, the year really back in March and even into April and into May, and Well, I'd have to think about uh, the progression of decisions that we made, but we started through all of this in wanting to conduct and crown as many USJ champions as we could. You know, you think about every USJ championship, whether it's our senior women's amateur or the US amateur or the US mid amateur or the girls junior, uh, each of those are a major championship for somebody in their category. And we, we, we wanted to conduct everything that we could, but you know, health and safety was our first consideration. Uh, you know, we don't just show up the day before USJ Championship and conduct it. They're, uh, they're not only months, but years in the planning, whether they're one of our open championships, uh, one of the four opens, or one of our 10 amateur championships. And really, the health and safety of all of those that, that at the host club or uh, that go into all of that, all of that planning that goes into it, or, or our vendors or the local communities and all the volunteers, we, we just needed to put that first and foremost. And some of those decisions needed to be made several weeks ahead of time, but they were heartbreaking. Make no mistake about it. They were, they were heartbreaking, every single one of them. And, and the way that we think of it is we really turned over every stone and looked at every possible scenario before we made any of those decisions, whether it was cancellation or uh, to, to no longer have qualifying. We looked at ways of condensed qualifying, We looked at uh, just a few qualifiers. We looked at, I think, just about every different way that we could think of to have some type of qualifying uh, and to conduct as many championships as we could. But in the end, with all of the things that were necessary from a health and safety standpoint, testing, safety protocols, government approvals, um, all of those things really contributed to our decisions. But... um, You know, I I think health and safety was first and foremost, and I I don't think there was ever a time where we just said, we're not going to do qualifying, but we did stay close to our allied golf associations who conduct over 650 qualifiers throughout the year. And, you know, thinking about rescheduling those from all the way back into April through July and August, uh, you know, when they've been challenged and the host clubs that are hosting them have been challenged, have been closed for months and need to open and generate revenue on their own. It was just the right decision for that and other reasons. Yeah.
0: No, I think it, uh, I guess, what, what do you wish that people understood more? I, I, I was uh, personally a bit uh, surprised at how much blowback I, th- I saw when it was announced that it would be a fully exempt field. I thought it was, you know, the alternative is that you don't have the U.S. Open, I think, once you guys have it had explored a lot of uh, the, the qualification possibilities that you just discussed. But what's, is there anything out there that you want to just, you know, get out to people to say, like, I wish people really understood where we we're coming from on this one?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think there is. I think there are a number of points. Uh, again, I think we went into the season trying to conduct everything uh, that we could and, and crown as many champions as we could. But as we got into it, it became, it became pretty clear that we were only going to be able to achieve so much. And we think the, the four championships, the U.S. Women's Amateur, the U.S. Amateur, the U.S. Open, and the U.S. Women's Open uh, represent something, will represent something very special if we can, if we can crown those four champions. Uh, and and I think by the end of the year in December, if we can crown those four champions and the Women's Open in December at Champions Golf Club, uh, we think it'll put a real exclamation point on the season. And you think about it. You think about crowning a U.S. Open champion at Wingfoot, which has been the epicenter of the virus in our country, literally Westchester County and uh, New Rochelle. And, and to be able to do that and what that will mean for that community and for the state of New York and for our country and the game Uh, We just wanted to make every effort to do that, and and really uh, these four are our best best path for success. But I think the one point is I would really want people to know that we're disappointed with having to cancel championships and qualifying. We know they are, and we are too, and I would want them to know that. And I, I think it's important that they understand that we agonized over every one of these decisions. Anybody on our staff, our championship committee, our executive committee, tell you that we looked at every option and it was it was incredibly uh, difficult and heartbreaking uh, to do that. And we didn't take that lightly, but we set our priorities with health and safety. and, and I know there are different opinions on that, but we thought that was the most uh, important guiding star.
0: Do you, is there any, you know, you kind of, you threw out a few things as to how you got, you looked at abbreviated qualifying. Is there any one qualifying option that was the closest to happening? Like, I I don't know if you can give us any specifics as to, you know, thinking like, you know what, we were, had the lead on this and we were close to making this happen, but just couldn't figure it out. Any idea, any details you give us on what an abbreviated qualifying might have looked like?
1: Sure. I, I could, I could share spreadsheets with you today. Uh, as we make this announcement today on multiple plans that we had for qualifying. And I'll give you one example. U.S. Open qualifying uh, begins in April, and it runs through May, and uh, 109 sites around the country uh, and in Canada uh, that uh, are U.S. Open local qualifying. And then we, we would uh, move to 12 final qualifying sites in June, both in the United States and, and one in uh, England and one in Japan and one in Canada. And uh, we looked at 109 local qualifiers, taking them from April and May, and moving them into maybe late July and August ahead of what Wingfoot would be. And we said, boy, we can't ask our AGAs, which have many of them been closed down, golf clubs that have been closed down. You You know, there wasn't even really the ability to communicate with golf clubs because they were closed. Uh, by government restriction, not everywhere, but in many places, you know, the golf shops were closed, clubhouses were closed for safety reasons. We couldn't even communicate uh, with them and the ability to schedule 109 on top of what clubs were trying to reschedule and generate revenue on their own and and, uh, AGAs with their events. But we did create a scenario where uh, we looked at uh, final qualifying for the U.S. Open to where we might limit it to just maybe a dozen or so, or, or uh, a little more than that even, uh, or even a little less than that sites and conduct final qualifying and bypass the local qualifying stage and just exempt uh, folks into final qualifying. But I think one of the things that was really uh, important for us was the manner in which we would conduct qualifying. And we made the decision, oh, several weeks ago to, to be able to, or we made the decision to conduct um the championships under a testing protocol for players uh, to create uh, a very safe and the safest and healthiest atmosphere that we could for each of our championships. You know, if you've seen the PGA Tour protocols for testing and health and safety, you know they they started in Dallas at Colonial uh, a couple weeks ago, and we're in we're in uh, Hilton Head this week, and all the players, caddies, essential workers are being tested, and and uh, we've worked very closely with the PGA Tour, the other majors, and. Really, uh, to provide that uh, level of safety was something we felt was important. And to do that for our championships was one thing, daunting, basically starting from scratch with all of that. Not easy, getting government approvals, creating those testing protocols, health and safety protocols. But to be able to have to do that for qualifying, even if it were a dozen or 15 qualifiers, and put that on our AGAs, who really would have been challenged to be not qualifying, let alone a testing protocol and health and safety protocols. You know, you think about it. How are AGA's going to conduct qualifying where, you know, government mandates or you can only show up 10 or 15 minutes before your starting time? How do you administer a practice area? How do you do simple things like put your hand in a water cooler to grab a bottle of water on a 95 degree day when you're conducting qualifying? How do, when you have lightning in the area, how do you evacuate people? You sure, aren't going to pile them into vans, let alone uh, test them a couple days beforehand and ask them to administer something like that. It just wasn't possible. We got close. We looked at it. But uh, we felt that to provide uh, a healthy and safe atmosphere for everybody, we needed to limit it to our championships.
0: Yep, no, that definitely that definitely makes sense. And just hearing describe all that out, it sounds like. Uh it sounds. It makes more sense as to how the the current setup came to be, and it's you know I, as a golf fan again, I say you know the next worst alternative is that the event gets canceled, right? And as somebody that wants to watch the U.S. Open on TV, regardless of what month it's in, uh, I'm very thankful that it's happening, and I I very. Don't enjoy the fact that the Open Championship is not happening, and I think they have a whole different bucket of considerations to uh, to go through and and whatnot. But uh, that's the alternative, and that's not a, not a good one in my mind. So. Um, if you want to go through, if you don't mind, kind of walking us through the, uh, the the criteria here. So, in a normal year, the top sixty players in the official world golf rankings are going to be uh, are automatically qualified. The adjustment that is made for twenty twenty is that the top seventy in ties in the world rankings uh, will be qualified for this. Kind of what what what, what caused that expansion from sixty to seventy?
1: Well, it really was uh, in our minds a fairness uh, component. You know, I, I think that uh, we felt that. Uh, the ability to expand to the top 70 and, and use the frozen rankings to do so was just the ability to uh, give a few more players the ability to uh, to play and, uh, and use the rankings to do that. We knew we wanted to do more than just use the rankings, but we also knew that that was going to be a, a linchpin for us. And doing that and using the frozen rankings, it allowed a number of things to happen. It allowed us to really build out and expand that category to get to what I mentioned before with our opening premise in doing all of this with a fully exempt field, and that is to really have a representative field. And looking at the rankings and going 70 deep, it, it gave us a nice mix of PGA Tour players, European Tour players, uh, foreign tour players. Uh, and you'll see that in, in what we've built. We've, uh, we've not limited it to just the PGA Tour and the European Tour. You see the worldwide some of the worldwide tours, developmental uh, tours, Corn Ferry Tour, and we, that really comes from the data that we looked at. And, and uh, it started with uh, the OWGR, Official World Golf Ranking, and starting with 70. And, and it really helped us build, uh, build out uh, uh, that ability to fill our field in a, in a, in a starting way where uh, we had a good representation. It also, you know, you think about the, the challenges uh, with travel, even just the, the ability to travel safely, but even more so international travel. And we felt that it was important for players to be able to plan their schedule this year more than ever. Uh, Just people getting in this country uh, from other countries that have travel restrictions currently uh, and having to self-quarantine for 14 days and plan their schedule accordingly. We wanted to give, you know, maybe a bit of an expansion uh, on the rankings and use them so that a few more players could play or excuse me, play and plan their schedules around uh, the U.S. Open. And then the next step was, is
0: also there's spots available through the Memorial, the 3M Championship, the WGC FedEx St. Jude, the Barracuda, and the Wyndham and the PGA Championship. Without it say, spelled out specifically, it sounds a bit kind of like the Open Qualifying Series for the Open Championship. Is that, was that used as a model at all or kind of an example of uh, some qualifying criteria to go off of for you guys?
1: Uh, certainly we recognized what our partners, our governance partners over at the RNA and our good friends, uh, certainly do with the, uh, with the British open and, uh, you know, not having qualifying this year. Yeah. We, we looked at that. We, we understood what they did. And, but I think from our standpoint, the principle behind that and, and, you know, today's announcement, and, and I think that that is the one category that I look at that'll probably be the most surprising to people because it, it was a, it was a lot of creative thought that went behind it. Uh, from the standpoint of what events do we use to allow some players to earn their way in. It certainly doesn't replace qualifying. Uh, it's not perfect, but it does provide a pathway for some to earn their way in that otherwise wouldn't fit in these exemption categories that we've expanded. And we're excited about that. We think that the ability to earn your way in through those championships uh Two or three spots uh, to those that otherwise wouldn't be fully exempt will be a real carrot for, for many that will that will uh, will chase that ability to play in the U.S. Open. So, I think uh, I, I think that's um, that was something we we really thought a lot about and providing that earn your way in opportunity. It's it's not perfect. It's not qualifying, but you know what? Qualifying is not perfect when you really think about it because. Sometimes the best players don't qualify. Yeah. You you know, and so there's no silver bullet here, but we felt that this was something that we could provide that would allow maybe some uh, that otherwise wouldn't have the opportunity to play their way in.
0: And it's diverse too. I mean, there's the the Corn Ferry Tours regular regular season points list. The top five from that will qualify. The top five from the Corn Ferry Finals, as well as the top ten uh, in aggregate points for the first five events on the uh, the European Tours United UK Swing. Uh, those those folks all qualify as well. So it's not just just through the PGA Tour. There's you know opportunities on both the Corn Ferry Tour, the European Tour, as well as there's Order of Merit categories on the Japan Golf Tour, Sunshine Tour, Asian Tour and Australasia tour. So it sounds like the goal was not just necessarily, obviously the, the focus being on the United States.
1: No, that's exactly right. And again, it goes back to looking at the data of what a typical U S open field year in and year out looks like, uh, from a representation, uh, across the world. And, um, you know, I, I think, uh, you mentioned the corn Ferry tour. I, I, that's just one. And you mentioned the player went in opportunities with, uh, Uh, with the Barracuda or the 3M, you know, I think you'll see, you'll see players uh, coming from the Memorial or, um, or the St. Jude, the World Golf Championship event that might be more of the higher ranked players that otherwise wouldn't be fully exempt, but you'll see, you'll see some of uh, those from the Barracuda probably, or the 3M that would, um, you know, maybe be some players that, that you'd see uh, come up through qualifying. Same with the Corn Ferry Tour events that uh would normally uh have to make their way through qualifying and and we, we really looked at the corn Ferry tour to provide those opportunities based on what the corn Ferry tour normally produces uh each year as representation in the u.s open and then i think something that we're quite excited about is the uk uh swing the events that uh, will kick off and we'll use five of those and as you mentioned the aggregate 10 players for those first five events and um you know we're excited about that because every year the European Golf Association conducts a, a qualifier for us in London at Walton Heath Golf Club, which is a magnificent place, 36 holes just outside of London. And typically year in and year out, that's usually our strongest qualifying field, either that or one of our fields in Ohio around the Memorial Championship, uh, Memorial Tournament. But uh, we felt that it was important to continue that uh, that opportunity for our for our friends in Europe uh, to to be able to earn their way in through that UK swing. It it again, it doesn't replace qualifying, but it does provide that pathway for the for players to play their way into the U.S. Open.
0: I think that's how Michael Campbell got in was through uh, through Walton Heath, if I remember right. right.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was the very first year I believe that we conducted qualifying in Europe, and Michael uh, got in. And went on to win. That's right at Pinehurst. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's great. I remember seeing that he uh, sent a flag back or something. news was in the in the clubhouse there that uh, commemorated that. But uh, there is, I yeah, think very that, good. I think that pretty much covers up uh, covers us off on a lot of qualifying stuff. And I uh, hope you save some energy because I really want to pick your brain on course <laughs> setups and everything here. But and uh, I, I'm not afraid to nerd out over some of this stuff and get down to the nitty gritty. But kind of higher level first. Is the crisis affecting how Wingfoot will be set up at all? And if so, how uh, how might that be? I know you're dealing with uh, a golf course in the Northeast in September, which is different than than in June. Is it help? Does it hurt? What what kind of effect will you know moving the U.S. Open to three months later have uh, for your job?
1: Well, you know, it's uh, it's going to have a number of effects, but uh, nothing that that we can't overcome, and 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 we'll have a great U.S. Open. First thing that we've really uh, considered is just we have less daylight in September than than we do in June. You know, we typically play the U.S. Open during the time of the year, the summer solstice, where uh, we have the most daylight of uh, you know during the year, and so we're able to really um, develop our uh, you know our starting times and 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 our field of 156 based on that daylight and and this year we're just not going to have that opportunity and we've got about an hour and a half less daylight on uh, the back end and about an hour less on the front end and so we've gone with a field of um, 144 and, uh, down from 156 and we'll do some things that are that are not uncommon that professional players see you know we'll light the range in the morning so players can can warm up early and we can start right at uh, right at dawn and and really really get in as many players as we can and you know, I'll tell you that even with that limited daylight, it's not it, it's not insurmountable because even in June, we we do have uh, plenty of time. But I think uh, when you think about the Northeast and Wingfoot uh, in, in September, it's a beautiful time of the year to play. It's not over Father's Day or, or U.S. Open Sunday in June. But boy, uh, to be a Wingfoot in September, uh, it really, we have a chance to uh to see uh, that golf course in all its glory and you know some of the greatest US Open history has been uh, has been conducted uh, at Wingfoot. Bob Jones in 1929 made that 8-footer uh, on that famous 18th green to go into a playoff, 36-hole playoff the next day where he, he won by 23 strokes and then you know down through the years you have Billy Casper in 1959 and Fuzzy Zeller in 1984 and then of course Jeff Ogilvy in that amazing finish in 2006 but uh, you know Wingfoot's the type of place June or September it really doesn't matter it's Wingfoot, and we could uh if you give the usj a couple of weeks uh and you just uh you groom things a little bit for a couple of weeks you could play the us open at Wingfoot most any uh, time during the summer or the early fall it's that type of golf course it's just a iconic uh us open golf course well how
0: different is the challenge for you for Wingfoot? i mean 2019 was your first year of setting up uh, the u.s men's uh championship at pebble beach Completely different setting, different grasses, and now this different time of year. So, what, what right now? You know, three months out from it, what's keeping you up at night? What, uh, what, what are you? What are some of the variables?
1: Well, some of the variables. It's all. It always starts with the weather. Uh, it, the golf course will be what the golf course is. Wingfoot is different than Pebble Beach. It's different than Marion. It's different than the Olympic Club. It's different than Pinehurst or Oakmont or uh, Shinnecock Hills. They're all different, and I think that's a that's really a wonderful trait of of the U.S. Open. Uh, we really take the. US open to our country's greatest venues most revered venues and, and and we think that's something special that we we will always maintain you know we can showcase the very best that our country has whether it's um, whether it's the fescue and and uh, and of Shinnecock Hills or the or the uh, rocky outcroppings at Pebble Beach or the sand hills, uh in North Carolina at Pinehurst, or the Rolling Hills at Oakmont and Pittsburgh. It, it, we can showcase the best that golf has to offer in our country. So they're all different. But I think really last year at Pebble Beach, we did think a little differently about our philosophy and in how we approach the U.S. Open. And uh, one of those uh, sort of guiding lights was, we're going to these great courses. Let's just let them be those great courses. And, um, and just Go in with a game plan and stick to it regardless of the weather. We did that with Pebble. We didn't get the win. Scores might have been a little lower than had we had a little bit of wind, but we weren't going to deviate from that because Pebble Beach is so great, and we had a great U.S. Open, and Wingfoot is that same way. It is a magnificent golf course. It will be a great test. Whoever wins there will have earned it, and uh, we're just going to let Wingfoot be Wingfoot.
0: Well, I, I'm really, I like how you said that there because I'm in agreement with you on Pebble Beach. And uh, I've always thought that the RNA gets a complete pass when, you know, scores get low in the Open Championship. I think they do a great job of letting the conditions dictate the scoring. Um, and I, I'm, I know you can't speak to necessarily all U.S. Opens in the past, but do you get tempted or lured in any way when you see that the wind's not going to come, when you see it's maybe not going to be as firm as you would um, you know, ideally have it. A lot of people, uh, several generations, I think of people in the in the US and golf fans, uh, it's just for whatever reason detest a US open that has a low winning number right, in relation to par. Do you feel any obligation to par in any way, or do you feel like you need to deliver at all in any way to the people that view a U.S. Open and will only only like to watch it when there's absolute carnage?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, I can only speak for myself and uh, what our philosophy is at the USGA, and par is not the target. Now, there'll be people that won't believe that, but I think we uh, evidenced that last year at Pebble Beach. Sure, it was tempting when we didn't get the wind. Uh, it was tempting to try to uh, put the pedal to the metal and do something that would, uh, you know, provide a few more defenses for that, for that great uh, Lynx course. But we really, you know, we went into it and our game plan was truly a, a little bit different in a few areas, and, but primarily it was, let's go in with this plan and let's stick with it. And let the golf course dictate who's gonna win, not the USGA. And uh, I think that will remain. It, whether it's Wingfoot or Pebble Beach or Pinehurst or uh, Torrey Pines next year, I think we go in with a game plan and, and, I, and I think we let it be, and uh, it's good enough that way. I think a US Open setup is enough to crown uh, a US Open champion. You know, we put a, a premium on accuracy what we try to create is is something special that when you hoist that trophy at the end of a U.S. Open, you really feel that you've done something special. You know, I, I go back to some comments that have stuck with me over the years. Uh, I'll use Tom Watson, who I grew up uh, having great admiration for and watching play. And, you know, his dad made him memorize all the U.S. Open champions on the trophy when he was a young boy and told him when he was younger. And he, Tom speaks to this, that you know, if you can ever win the National Open, you would have really achieved something special because you will have won it on the toughest golf course of the year. And that would be an amazing accomplishment. And then I think back a few years ago, Jeff Ogilvie, who won at Wingfoot in 06, I think it was a couple years later, and he was in the media center and the media asked him, uh, he got a question about, well, you shot 67 today. and Did you enjoy that? Did you have fun shooting that 67 in a, in a U.S. Open? And as Jeff does, he's a pretty cerebral guy, super smart guy. He sat back and he, he kind of looked around the room and he said, you know, I don't think I would describe what I did today as fun or enjoyable. Uh, but I really feel like I achieved something by shooting 67 on a U.S. Open golf course. And I think that's what we, we endeavor to do. And I don't know that it's as much around a, sc- a score as it is really um thinking about your strategy around the golf course and i don't mean that as just shot making Uh, being able to drive your ball in the fairway and place your ball in the particular place on the putting green to where you can make a putt or if you have some adversity and you drive it uh, in a place that uh, you have to either chip out or you have to lay up or you short side yourself on a green you just take your medicine and you move on and, and being able to overcome that adversity that a lot of players don't sense uh, you know, week in and week out, uh, wherever they play. You know, Jack Nicklaus also said something that that stuck with a lot of us. He used to talk about going into the locker room of a U.S. Open early during, during practice round. And there'd be players uh, in the locker room complaining about the rough or the narrowness of the fairways or some of the whole locations that they were anticipating. And he'd walk through the locker room and he'd hear this and he wouldn't say anything. But he'd hear that discussion. He'd say to himself, well, I got him beat mm-hmm. and I got him beat. And I got him beat because of the mental aspects of being able to control his emotion and overcome that adversity when it came. That's part of what a U.S. Open is. But when you think about that recipe, being able to to to, uh, to make your ball move left to right or right to left or its height or short shots, shots out of the rough, being able to take your medicine, placing your ball below the hole and having the courage to, uh, to make that putt and not knock it by where – on speedy greens, it's tough to come back. And when you achieve something like that, you really feel like you've achieved something that's special and different than anything else. Not anything that has to do with par, but has to do with that, with that uh, examination, that, that uh, achievement that is like no, no other.
0: Yeah. I'm hoping you can, you can help me through this next point that I, I, I feel like I've learned a lot about the highest level of tournament golf just by playing at my own level tournaments in this past year. And that, you know, the, the challenge of your job in finding that line to identify and really challenge the best players in the world, and I still will maintain, I don't know how many, you know, these guys are good commercials there are. It's so hard for people to truly understand how good these guys are. But to really challenge them make them uncomfortable, you have to get so close to the edge that, you know, I thought for the most part, Shinnecock in 2018 was just a great challenge. And in a couple situations, it just... Push a, a hair too far, right? But that's the kind of fine line you have to dance. And so there's a mid-amp tournament I was playing uh, in February. Round one, completely benign conditions, shorts and short sleeves, pretty soft. And I, I am not close to one of the best players in this field, not even close. And in that environment, I could content, I could be a part, I could, you know, be close. I think I was maybe four or five off the lead after round one. And round two, the wind blew sideways, the greens firmed up, they were glassy, and I was just gripping on for dear life because I live in that in that variance period of like, I kind of need things, you know, to be stable around me and I can maybe claw my way within a a couple of these guys. And I remember thinking, this has to be so hard for everyone. And I saw the leaders come through at like, you know, I'm on one of the holes and I see them come through and I see like three of the shots they hit and it just stuck out to me. It was just like, oh, those... Those guys are just better than me. Like they can they can handle these variables and I can't. So long-winded way of saying like, how do you in setting up these championships find out what these variables are or what these challenges are that don't make it impossible for everyone, but make it really hard and really separate the guys at the top from the the guys that are surviving in that uh, weird variance area. Hope that made sense.
1: It does. It makes complete sense, and I think that is our challenge. You've identified our challenge, and I. You know, I, I, there's a couple of points in there that, that, that I would have uh, to react to what you just said. It's so great what you just said. Um, I don't I don't think of it, I don't think we think of it as pushing it to the edge. I, I think there have been times where certainly uh, yeah, I'm sure it seems as if we've done that, uh, you know, and Shinnecock Hills, you go back to 2018, it is a, such a unique place. Uh, the weather can change um, so quickly and it can change the dynamic of that golf course, particularly on the putting greens. And, uh, and it did. And, you know, uh, I'll tell you 71 hole locations just aren't good enough. Yeah. Uh, 71 good hole locations. You know, we need 72 of them. We had one that wasn't uh, maybe uh, of, of what we would have liked to have seen it play. But, uh, but you know what, Uh, there's a reason why Brooks kept go one. And uh, part of it was what he said. uh, Look, everybody's got to play the same hole and, and uh, let's just go play golf. And and that's his mindset. And I think that's why he's been a great U.S. Open performer for a number of years. You know, he won it, uh, at, at uh, Aaron Hills and, and shot 16 under, and then he wins at Shinnecock. And and um, and then he uh, came so close to a three-peat last year. He's just got that uh, that really tough mental outlook that he just goes and plays and, and takes what's in front of him, and, and that's a U.S. Open champion. You know, our strategy uh, now, too, and, and, and it's a good point that you make about uh, this, this concept of pushing it to the edge. I, I don't think that's where uh, we want it to be. That's not the way we think about it. I think we, we think about uh, the challenge of tough but fair. And I think the players, I know the players, we've talked to enough of them. Jason Gore is part of our team now is in close contact with the players. We have regular conversations with them like we've never had before. And that's been so beneficial on so many fronts. But I think, I think you know, there's a couple things I'd share. There's always been this tradition with the U.S. Open of putting your ball in the fairway, driving your golf ball in the fairway, uh, to be able to get it onto the green in a place where you can make a putt or, or, or at least two putt. And, and I think having that premium on accuracy off the tee is something we think a lot about. And I've talked to a number of players who uh, who won a number of years ago, the Curtis Stranges, the Tom Kites, the Lee Trevinos, the Hale Irwins, um, the Tiger Woods uh, that talk about that. Uh, keep that premium on accuracy. And, you know, maybe not as much on the putting greens. And that was our strategy last year, really the, really concentrate on the premium on accuracy off the tee and the strategy of shot making, but not try to not try to do anything on the putting greens that would that would be um, perceived as maybe not being fair, especially if the wind came up. And and we worked hard on that. And I think we achieved it last year. And we'll do that this year as well. And I really put that premium on actually, you know, Curtis Strange said something to me a couple of years ago, just having a long conversation with him about the US Open. And it it really struck me, he said, "Uh, you know, John." players today, there are more of them that are better athletes than when I played. They're better coached. They're better fitted. They train. uh, The equipment's better. I wonder what happens when they don't shoot under par at a U.S. Open. There are just more of them that are better now than there were 20, 30 years ago. I don't know if that's true, but I I certainly made me sit back and think about that, that, uh, you know, there are so many good players today that, that, uh, again, it just gets back to putting that premium on an a- on accuracy and then letting the golf course be the determiner uh, above all else as to who is a U.S. Open champion. The great sites we go to will take care of themselves in identifying the best players.
0: Well, I'm curious to pick your brain there on, I think, tough but fair is kind of, I don't even know if that's an official uh, motto from the USGA, but something that gets said a lot. And I personally don't necessarily uh, equate unfair to being excessively difficult. And I'm wondering if you could kind of, I'm I'm wondering if I could ask you what you think something that's unfair would be.
1: Well, we could make things unfair very easily if we wanted to with whole locations or, or, or a variety of things, firmness on fairways, firmness on greens. I think it's, it really gets down to, uh, when you strike a good shot in, you have a, a, uh, a reasonable opportunity to be rewarded, mm-hmm. and uh, that's really what it comes down to. And you know that that's off the tee, that's uh, in in the fairway uh, or on the putting greens. And uh, it, we think about that a lot. And and uh, you know I think a lot of it is perception too. We can set holes or that are eminently fair and might produce some good scoring, but they, but they might, they might, uh, they might not be perceived that way. We think, we think about that a lot, but I think in the end, you're right. It's not, you, we can be tough and be fair because, you know, if we really wanted to, to really, um, to push it and, uh, and really uh, tuck whole locations or put them on the edges of slopes or grow the rough to six or eight inches, well, we could make it impossible. But it is a fine balance. I think that's what makes the U.S. Open different is that it is a balance. And uh, I don't know that we push it right to the edge. I think we want to be a pace or two from the edge, but we want it to be difficult. The players want it to be difficult. We hear that from them. They want to win something that's special. They want to be uh, included in that great list of champions that is Jones and Hogan and Palmer and Nicholas and Woods. Uh, you know that's the list that they want to be a part of. They want their name on that trophy and with those great players and all that they've achieved over the years on those great those great courses uh, that were set up tough. Um, and uh, I think our our challenge is t- to make it fair and and uh, and uh, there are a lot of considerations that go into that, including the weather, you know, the weather is probably the thing that does keep me up at night because you never know what that's going to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> you know, It can change in a heartbeat to whether the wind picks up or you get you think you're going to get something. And all of a sudden that that uh, thunderstorm uh, builds and and the gully washer comes down and changes the whole playing dynamic. You know, we had that at Oakmont in 2016 where we had four inches of rain on uh, between Wednesday and Thursday morning. And it just changed the entire dynamic of that great U.S. Open golf course. But, you you know, you still look and it was uh, it held its own because it's Oakmont.
0: Yeah. And I think too, it's like for some of these, you know, again, the margins you're working in, you know, length is an issue in a lot of golf courses. And if you, Get the wind forecast wrong, or if it changes from morning to afternoon, it changes directions. You know, you could have tee boxes where guys can't reach the fairways, where in the morning they could fly it easily. You know, if they had helping wind, and that's that's kind of uh, kind of what I was getting at with with unfair. And it's it's a it's a fine line. It's a ton of gray in that you know in that chart uh, gray area of you know the spectrum between fair and difficult. And I think it's something that a lot of golf fans struggle with in that balance. But I'm also curious as to what you know, what, what did you learn from Pebble? Your first U.S. setup that, you know, that since you've been in charge, what were some of the lessons, uh, you learned from, from last year?
1: Well, I had the, I had the good fortune of, uh, of coming to the USJ in 2011. And one of the reasons I did was the ability to work within our, our system. Mike Davis is, is a, it's a wonderful guy, a close friend. I've known him for a lot of years. And, and his creativity in, in, uh, in setting up a, a U.S. Open golf course, um, you know, and we're going back to Wingfoot where he had his debut with Graduated Rough and, and some of his philosophy. Had the privilege of, of really working closely with him from 2011 until last year uh, when Mike really uh, handed the reins off, not just to me, but to a team that included individuals like Jeff Hall, who has 30 years experience with the USGA, Nick Price, a former world number one Player who was out there every day with us and set up. Uh, Jason Gore who uh, who influenced our uh, our decisions with tees and holes and setup uh, and others. Our agronomist Darren Bavard, Ben Kimball who runs our Senior Open and Walker Cup and U.S. Amateur. It's a great team. Uh, the buck stops with me, but um, in, in the with building the philosophy of what we endeavored to do last year. But it came after a number of years of really uh, working closely with Mike on some of these great golf courses and others on the team and. And you know, I I grew up uh, playing a lot of competitive golf, and and, um, strategy has always been something that's been fascinating to me. You know, what do players think about uh, in how uh, they attack a hole? Uh, Variety is important. Uh, You know, and we did that at Pebble. Uh, And I, I, you know, one of the mental challenges is when you you step up on a hole, and maybe the wind has shifted, or you see a tee or a hole location that's different than you would have anticipated. Uh, being able to uh, to deal with that is something that is the U.S. Open as well. I think at Pebble, I'll be honest with you. I think the thing that that really reinforced our strategy and that I probably learned uh, the most was just just letting Pebble be Pebble. Mm-hmm. When we didn't get the wind, it it was hard to not make adjustments that maybe would would put a little teeth into those opening six holes. That boy, the guys were just lighting up without any wind and uh, but we resisted that that was not easy we resisted that we didn't push the firmness you know i think that's the other thing i'd say is uh, even without the wind we had uh, record warm temperatures early in the week on the weekend before and the monday tuesday uh you know mid 80s on the monterey peninsula that's uh that's pretty rare and uh, we kept the greens in a place where, and they were so perfect. Chris Dahlhammer, the golf course superintendent, did a magnificent job. Uh, and I think the guys were wowed by those wonderful, tiny little Poyania putting greens that have 60 to 70,000 rounds a year. And they were perfect. We wanted to keep them perfect going to the U.S. Open. We didn't want them to firm up too quickly. And so we kept them hydrated. But then we got the cloud cover, and, and they didn't firm up as quickly as we would have liked. But we didn't push it we just didn't we didn't increase the green speed we stayed with our plan we had to be disciplined to do it and that was probably the thing that i learned the most that it just uh, we had a great us open because we stuck with our plan and let pebble be pebble you
0: can ha- you can't say pebble if this is the answer um, and you'll see why here in a second but if you had to pick if you had to pick a model setup us open you know from somewhat recent memory that you know at least that i'm 34 years old at least that i would remember uh, what's the best U.S. Open setup that you've seen?
1: Wow, that's quite a question. I love them all. You know, they're all different. I'm going to pin <laughs> you down. The, if
0: you, I'm not going to let you get away with "I the, the love them all."
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> I hear you. Uh, the best. Well, how do you how do you define best? Exactly. Uh, it, it's a hard one to quantify because, to me, the best setups are those that produce the best players, and and you know. I, you know you look at uh, two thousand and seventeen at Aaron Hills w- w- when Brooks won for the first time. Well, Brooks, who? Well, didn't take long for people to for Brooks to become a household name and and you go back through u s. open history. Uh, well, you if you remember Aaron Hills that year, um, Xander Shoffley, who really uh, was an unknown at the time, went through qualifying and i if I'm not mistaken. I think he finished fourth. I know he finished in the the top 10 uh he was he was in contention through through the week and uh that that fourth or maybe it was sixth place finish at um at aaron hills you know he went on to have a great year Won a little bit later in the year and and uh, now he is a household name one of the one of the better players in the pga tour so i i look at it that way and i i don't know i you know it's um just going back i i think uh oh goodness you know marion is such a treat um uh, I'd have to think about that a little bit. I think Oakmont and, and seeing four inches of rain in the uh, 36 hours before uh, before the first round and during the first round was, uh, you know, that was a great test. I, I guess um, I guess in my time since 2011, I, I think the one that was the most intriguing to me uh, because it was so new. And we felt so good about what we achieved was Pinehurst in 2014 mm. because it was so unique in, in preparing for back-to-back US o- you know, the U.S. Open and then the U.S. Women's Open. You know, Going into that, there was a lot of, uh, I don't want to say criticism, but a lot of you know, what is this going to look like in week two for the women and, and, and how is this going to pan out for the men? And this Pinehurst number two that in 1999 and 2005 was wall-to-wall green Bermuda grass and Bill and Ben Crenshaw came in a few years earlier and transformed it, restored it back to what Donald Ross had envisioned it to be with the sandy natural areas. And you know, you really didn't, that was the rough. You didn't have typical US open rough that year. Uh, you didn't have the four or five, six inches. You didn't have graduated rough. You had sandy natural areas and fairways were fairly wide. And and so we really didn't know what to expect and what the outcome would be. And certainly Martin Keimber dominated much of the week. And then you had Michelle Wee come the following week in, in an exhilarating win uh, of the U.S. Women's Open. I think that might have been in my time at the USGA the most satisfying because not to do that for one week, especially considering the unknown with the newer golf course, but to do it for two weeks. And we had comments from the women and and the media And everybody that wow, it doesn't even look like there was uh, anything played the week before the U.S. Women's Open. Uh, Pinehurst did a magnificent job preparing the golf courses, the golf course agronomically, and and we enjoyed two great U.S. Opens back to back. But it was so unknown, we didn't know what to expect, and I think that maybe was the most gratifying part of it. And then to be able to have it come off with you know there was a there was some criticism about how brown it looked and how fast it played Mm -hmm. and. you know, I, I think that some of that is fair, and but at the same time, the, the messages about what were being sent about what golf could look like and be championship golf was was pretty cool too. So I don't know if it was the best setup, but I think it was the most gratifying during my uh, my ten years with the USGA. And I think that
0: US Open gets not written off amongst golf fans, but. The fact that it, the climber won by so much and people will just immediately refer to it as a snooze fest more so than a great championship, which is unfortunate because by all accounts, it was, I, I think Pinehurst is the greatest golf course maybe that I've, I think that I've played in the United States and especially for tournament golf. I think it's the greatest separator of exactly what I was speaking on earlier. Like the, you can't live in those, you know, those variant zones at Pinehurst. It will expose you. Uh, it, whatever part of your game, if it's not strong enough, it will identify. Um, so I, I'm glad you said that. And I, I, I always go back to Oakmont. I thought that was great. Especially considering what you what you mentioned about the four inches of rain, I just thought, you know, the shot value on that golf course. It was you got rewarded for a really good shot, and you got punished when you hit a bad one. And there wasn't you didn't get away with a lot, and uh, there was nothing. It was it just the right amount of balance is what what I kind of went back to. But since I've you know I've buttered you up for fifty five minutes or so, whatever it is now, and I, I know I've got at least enough. Good content in here. That if you do hang up on me for this next part, then uh, then yeah, I'm kidding. But you know, there was the recent Golf Digest report in recent years of a potential player boy, boycott of the U.S. Open. I have my doubts as to how real that boycott actually was. I know a lot of players have said they wouldn't have played, but I just want to know as to whether or not that feedback that you got from players is if that really did help inspire a reaction within the USGA. And if you, if you can really trace any changes that have been made in the organization back to uh, kind of things boiling over to that point.
1: Interesting question. Well, look, we're human. We pay attention to those things, you know, and, uh, I don't know that it, if there was a boil, boiling point. I, I will say this: uh, we knew that in 2019 at Pebble Beach, we needed not just a good U.S. Open, we needed a great U.S. Open. We needed it. Uh, we had had some challenges in the previous years. Shinnecock, you could say, was a setup challenge. Oakmont was a rules challenge, and Chambers Bay was an agronomic uh, challenge. But you know, you look at the leaderboards in each of those Opens, and they were great leaderboards. But Again, we wanted it to be about the great players and about uh, the great golf courses that we go to, and, and and just us being the background, not about us. That was the really the foundational part of what we took from all of those learning experiences. And I'll tell you, the thing that has made perhaps as big a difference as anything has been uh, our um, our efforts around player relations. Uh, We are fans of these great players, just like anybody else. And uh, we admire what they do. We have Nick Price on our board, uh, who is one of the finest human beings I've I've ever met. I think that a couple of years ago, it was something I felt very strongly about. I talked to Nick a lot about, and uh, went to Mike Davis and said, Mike, we need somebody that 24 seven, 365 can be in communication with the players. You know, you think about the USJ over the years, we really haven't had that constant communication with the players, and now you, in the age of social media and communications, the way that they are, and travel, and you know, people people just have loud voices, and um, and and we needed that. We needed to not only have an ear to the players and genuinely listen to what they had to say, but to also. Just as importantly, communicate to them the why behind our decisions. Why do we set up a U.S. Open the way we do? And then conversely, what do they want to see set up be? And and it's been really revealing. They want to win on a golf course that tests every one of their skills as a player, especially the greatest players, because they know that they have an advantage because the more complete players think they can win a U.S. Open physically, mentally, ball-striking-wise, all of it. And uh, they want that. They want that challenge because it means so much more. And so what does that mean? How do we define that? Where do they want to play their U.S. Open? You know, Nick Price said something that, again, is a defining sort of a guiding star for us. We talk about it all the time uh, as we think about where we're going to go in the future for a U.S. Open. Pretty simple, but Nick said, you know, John, he said it to our championship committee. He didn't just say it to me. He said, it's important where the guys win their U.S. Open. And mm-hmm. you think about that. It's very true. Gary Woodland winning at Pebble Beach last year, or Dustin winning at Oakmont, or, or Brooks winning at, um, at Shinnecock, let alone Aaron Hills. I mean, we want to go to those courts, but we want to know where the players want to go. And I think we've never had that ability to really have that sort of meaningful dialogue, that private dialogue. And having Jason Gore on our staff, somebody who's walked down the 18th ferry with a lead in a PGA Tour event and, have, and has won. He's won seven times on the major professional level. He, he, he's earned the respect of his colleagues. And he's just a great guy with tremendous integrity, a wonderful family man who loves the USGA, loves the PGA Tour, loves professional golf. But his proudest moment, he will tell you, in his golf career was when he was announced on the first tee in representing the United States in the Walker Cup match in 1997. It was hard for him to draw the club back, he says and i think that's a combination that is very special that has allowed us to really ha- develop a dialogue with the players that we've never had and i think you know a lot of what we saw in that golf digest article was something we already knew we had heard most of that previously that was not new to us and it was a lot of it was came out of discussions with players that we had had it just uh, unfolded even more so with jason and and it's just made us better and you know we went into that thinking we're not going to we're not going to flip the light switch and change this dynamic in one year it's going to take several years but we're going to work hard at it and we're going to do the right things and we're going to have that dialogue explain our positions and listen to their opinions and we're going to be uh, in a better place
0: you, you touched on it there with you know step one being jason but uh, i i think whether for right if whether it's right or wrong the knock on the usga amongst a lot of top players has been, you know, why are these 15 handicappers telling us how to, how to play this game and being in charge? So with Jason, you know, taking, you know, having that step as well, but I probably should have led with this. So for better context, uh, for the listeners, for you know the sake of this interview, but tell us about your golf background and, uh, what does qualify you to kind of be, uh, in, in charge of the, of the championship setups?
1: You know, that question just gets to the heart and soul of, uh, of what we just talked about with Jason and developing that dialogue, uh, I never played on the PGA tour, but, uh, I did play a lot of competitive golf, uh, growing up. I played in college. I played at Brigham Young University on a national championship team, uh, played with some great players, uh, played professionally for, uh, three years, won a couple of state opens, won a state amateurs and amateur, as an amateur. Uh, played in NCAA championships. I, I never, I never won a tour event, never played on the PGA tour, got, to, uh, got to the second stage of tour school qualifying a couple times, but, um. I always felt like I was a pretty good player, and then you take somebody like Jason who won at the major tour level or or, uh, or Nick Price uh, or Jeff Hall, who is uh, our championship director for the U.S. Open and, and and operates the day-to-day side of things inside the ropes, agronomically and course setup-wise, who played on uh, a couple of uh, Division Three national championship teams uh, down at a small college in Alabama with a guy by the name of Joe Durant, who's uh, been a longtime tour player and a great guy uh we're not 15 handicappers uh we're pretty good players we're not we're not of the level of those greatest players on the pga tour but i think our challenge is taking what we know and imparting it into what we do with the golf course but also knowing what we don't know and bringing in the expertise with the jason gorn and nick price and others you know one thing we did last year at pebble beach that uh, another learning moment for me was we brought in a, a couple of folks that we'd never, we really had never done that sort of thing before. We've always sought input from the local uh, PGA golf professional at club or or a or Nick Price, but we sought uh, Casey Boynes, a winner of two California amateurs and uh, multiple amateur championships. Was a 35-year caddy at Pebble Beach, and Pebble Beach had four new greens last year. We brought Casey in, and he walked the golf course with us and talked about. Not only whole locations that we should avoid uh, because it could get away from us in a wind but also whole locations that presented a unique challenge in a subtle way there was a whole location on the left side of the 18th green that casey shared with us that we used at, at last day that there was, there was a, a very subtle ridge that was there that you really had to be uh, someone that had a unique talent to read a putting green and uh, casey pointed it out to us uh, we probably wouldn't have seen it but uh, you know, that, that, that was used. And, uh, I, th- I think that, uh, that made the test better. And then we brought in four PGA tour and European tour, uh, uh, rules, guys who have had some tour experience, slugger white, John Paramore, Mark Russell, uh, Brian Clare. We weren't so proud that we couldn't bring some of them into our world and say, look at these whole locations, look at these tea locations. What do you think? And really they mainly just confirmed what we were thinking, which was invaluable But they they had a nugget or two that they shared and said, well, why don't you think about that? And we listened. And I think the players noticed that. And uh, that was a learning. I think, and we've always let folks into our world, but I think we did it a little bit deeper this last year. And I could give you other examples. And we'll continue to do that. We're going to do that at Wingfoot. We're not uh, too proud to uh, to not be open-minded to uh, some outside uh, ideas. And Jason and Nick have provided that. And we need that expertise along with more.
0: Yeah, that was kind of the. I'm glad you touched on that, though. The the piece of feedback within that article that stuck out to me the most was that whoever had said, you know, he saw 12 people on a green. You know, trying to search for a whole location and none of them were from the tour. The guys that do it every week, and I think it's a good sign. You know that you're seeing feedback like that and and specifically addressing some of those issues. And and also, just to your point, I hadn't really thought of this really until you started talking about it. But it's also an interesting spot you find yourself in, and that you've played a lot of competitive golf, but not all the way at the top level, and that. You may be a better person to identify what separates the very, very top level from a player like yourself. You know more so than you know a, a knock on Jack Nicholas has been you know the design of his golf courses can sometimes look like it's designed with you know the shot in mind for the best type of player, not necessarily the the twenty five handicapper, but almost flipped the other way. It seems like you're in kind of a unique position to say, you know, what I, I at least have some insight as to you know what really separates um, you know a the fiftieth best player from the best player.
1: Yeah, I I think that's true, and I I think uh, the way that I think about about what I do is is just to really uh, try to be smart enough to listen to what others uh, what others share. You know, the Nick Prices, the Jason Gores, the Jeff Halls, the Slugger Whites, and then decipher from that uh, how we go forward and and build the strategy and uh, define tough but fair. And really, I think in the end, really create something that is special that's unlike anything else. And you know, I think it, I think it does get back to what Nick Price said at our championship committee meeting two and a half years ago. It's important where guys win their U.S. Open. It all starts with the golf course. It's like Oakmont or Wingfoot. You know, as I said, Oakmont's another one. The way they maintain that golf course week in and week out, you could dial up a U.S. Open in two weeks at Oakmont and go play there. It's just that type of golf course. Wingfoot's that way most every every place we go to, Shinnecock. And I, and I think it's uh, it, it starts with that site selection and really those iconic revered sites that That just take care of identifying the best players as they they always have. And uh, just being smart enough to let that be. I I keep saying that, but it is so important. And just let let the golf course and these great players be the show. I I think more than anything, that's our philosophy. When I say let Wingfoot be Wingfoot or Pebble Beach be Pebble Beach, it just means being on that great golf course and then just letting the players go play Mm -hmm. and sticking with our plan. And to me, that's exciting. And I, I think we've got a, a good path forward. I think we're listening to the players and have that dialogue to explain what we're trying to do. If they do have a question, we're on it immediately. And, um, and I'm excited about the future. Yeah, you know, that Golf Digest article was something that, um, you know, was was kind of a seminal moment. You know, I, I we felt some momentum after that to where, you know, I think the anonymous nature of that was something that even a lot of players told us, "Wow, that that's." that's going too far and it was really kind of a kind of an interesting dynamic where uh things kind of shifted the other way where where um you could just feel it within the usj that this is with jason with pebble beach with it was just we were set up to really uh have a have a have a good us open and we had not just a good one but a great one and um The weather will keep me up at night, but uh, you look at this last week at Wingfoot, it was perfect. Mm -hmm. Low 80s. Uh, There was predicted thunderstorms on Saturday, maybe Sunday. They didn't come. Well, we're hopeful that uh, we'll get that in September. And if we do, boy, people are going to have a a reintroduction to Wingfoot and how great it is. You know, A lot of the young players didn't experience it in 2006, and uh, I can't wait to see what they think of one of our most iconic venues.
0: I've got about 50 more questions for you that I think we'll have to come back for uh, for a part two. Maybe we do this closer to the U.S. Open, but I uh, got through the main core of what I wanted to, wanted to chat with you about. And uh, I, I do want to come, you know, we'll do a separate one. Maybe it's the next time you come on to talk about U.S. Women's Open and all the considerations that have gone into that and Country Club Country Club of Charleston last year and how uh, a December one at, uh, at Champions is going to play and all that good stuff because there's a lot to be excited about. And we didn't even talk USAM, a whole bunch of stuff. So, uh, But I will... Let you go, John. Thanks so much for joining us. I know our listeners will appreciate uh, a lot of the color on a lot of these topics and uh, hope to do it again sometime.
1: Well, I'd, I'd love to. I'd, I love this stuff. And uh, you're gracious to have me on. I would say one of the we didn't talk about with qualifying that I, I would just offer up, and I don't know if you have the opportunity to work it in, and that is um, you'll see, uh, you, you see in what we've done with the uh, exemption categories and what we've created, uh, you'll see amateurs in the field. And um, we've created a pathway for amateurs. We've looked back over five years and an average of 15 amateurs a year over the last five years. And so that pathway was very important to us. We'll have six fully exempt ones, US Amateur Champion, British Amateur Champion, and so on. But we've created a, a pathway through the World Amateur Golf Ranking and that amateur presence in the US Open is very important. We're excited about that. And and looking at the data, again, we rest on it. And uh, having amateurs in the US Open is a great tradition. And uh, it'll it'll hold true at Wingfoot.
0: yeah i glanced over that and then the the point as well that uh the rest of the field will be we filled in through the official world golf rankings as of uh august 23rd if i'm reading that right that's correct all right yeah. well, we look forward to seeing how that plays out and uh, how the how the quote-unquote qualification goes here on a lot of these events here the remaining months and uh, how the field ends up but again thank you john for joining and uh, hope to do it again sometime
1: thank you it was it was a pleasure cheers